Welcome to Actinline, a product of the Acton Institute for the Study of Religion and Liberty. I'm Gabriel Jaja, producer. COVID-19 has impacted us in ways that will affect us for generations. In this episode, I explore a very particular ramification of COVID. The fact that children who were born during the pandemic have scored significantly lower on cognitive tests. I sit down with Dr. Jennifer Roback morse president and founder of the Ruth Institute, to unpack this phenomenon. You can find additional resources in the show notes of this episode, as well as find previous episodes of Actonline on our website at actonline slash actonline. If you like this program, you can help us reach even more listeners by sharing it with a friend and leaving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. We welcome your comments as well. Actonline is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Joining me today is Dr. Jennifer Roback Morse. Dr. Morse is the founder of the Ruth Institute, a global nonprofit organization that defends the family at home and in the public square. She earned her PhD at the University of Rochester and taught economics at Yale and George Mason Universities. She was the affiliate scholar here at the Acton Institute. Actually, she has known Father Sirico and Chris Marin well before the founding of the Institute and has been involved since its inception. Doctor, it's a pleasure to have you here. I wanted to have this conversation with you about this new data that claims that babies born in, in 2020 and 2021 have a significantly lower IQ scores than babies born pre-COVID. Uh, now, these studies have shown that these IQ tests and these IQ scores have, have dropped 22 points from the average pre-COVID IQ scores, and that number is is staggering. And so I want to ask you, starting the conversation off about stress, mental fatigue, So stress and fear of the unknown pertaining to COVID has had a serious impact on parents now a year and a half into our quote-unquote two weeks to flatten the curve, also known as COVID lockdowns, restrictions, government abuse. Can you discuss how this stress negatively impacts children in their earlier years of development? Okay, so so let's talk about this in a general way before we get to these specific studies. Okay, Gabriel, I mean sure. because there there have been a couple studies out there, which obviously are going to be preliminary, right? Because we just don't have enough time to to look at the full impact on these kid, kiddos. But mm-hmm. but in general, what we do know about child development is that the the child's brain continues to develop after birth. So, you know, if you think about how big the human brain is and how big a baby's skull is, you know, it's not going to make it down the birth canal if the brain's fully developed before birth, right? So there's a whole significant process that takes place after birth. And the the thing that takes place uh, most immediately is the development of social skills, particularly the part of the brain that's called the limbic brain, which governs your ability to be in relationship with others, to interpret facial cues, um, to relate and connect to other people. Okay, And so that part of brain development, which is, which is about the social part of the brain, takes place primarily in your mother's arms mm. and in your mother's, in your interaction with, with your mommy, you know, when typically mommies are holding the baby and they're rocking the baby and they're looking at the baby and looking at the baby in the face, you know, looking in the eyes and everything. And so we, this whole topic became clear to me and to my husband because we, back in 1991, adopted a little boy from a Romanian orphanage. And 
and he, we were very concerned about his development, both his psychological and his physiological development and everything else. And that whole era of Eastern European adoptees coming to America made it clear to child development people just how important those early months and years are in the baby's development, particularly this brain development aspect that I'm talking about, uh, because what they found in Romania was a whole uh, rooms full of children who were displaying autistic symptoms and the researchers or the doctors, the pediatricians, the, the people who were over there concluded you know, that there was a new thing or a newly discovered, newly identified thing that which they called institutional autism. The thought being that, yes, many kids are born with autism, but it's also possible to create autistic symptoms if you don't have enough social interaction to allow the brain to develop that gives you normal um, human social interaction. So that's that's the, I would say, the core issue that we need to be concerned about. You know, if children are not getting the kind of social interaction with their parents, with a specific loving caregiver, if that's not happening, the the, the results can be absolutely dire. You know, um, which which what we were tracking, my husband and I, what we were tracking was attachment disorder, you know, which is generally not considered a brain development thing. It's generally considered a psychological thing, um, but it but it's it's similar to the autism in the sense that it is a a defect in your social functioning. Right, it's a, it's an aspect of being in relationship with others that just doesn't develop properly, and so therefore you got a kid who doesn't care about anybody, doesn't notice other people, maybe in extreme cases, and is extremely self-centered. Right, the, those are kind of the bad outcomes. Those are the disasters, um, the childhood development disasters that can happen if you don't have adequate connection between the parent and child in those early months and years. So it's it's the same symptoms of autism, but it's not. Is it is it still diagnosed as autism if it's not? Oh like yeah, a- they diagnose those kids as being autistic kids. Yeah, yeah. They but but the the reason it had that additional label of institutional autism is because the, the theory was, and I think this is a correct theory that because of adverse. Um, uh, adverse social conditions, ad- adverse environmental conditions. These were children who were not born autistic. They need not have had those symptoms. Those symptoms were induced in them by not allowing the proper normal course of of human development. That's the reason for that. So yeah, they oh they absolutely got autistic um, uh, labels put on them. Though it's not clear whether the interventions should be the same or could have been the same. I, I've tr- I confess I haven't followed all of this. Um, the development of, I'm sure, is much more known now than there was 20 years ago when we were immersed in it. Sure. Um, but um, but absolutely, those kids would get the, the autistic label, and it made sense. It, you know, the, many of the patterns were similar, but, but not all of them were similar. But I, I think the main thing for... Uh, responsible citizens to be aware of is just how vulnerable children really are um, and how much children need the the loving, consistent interaction with the parent in order to have their full development and full flourishing. Everybody needs to be concerned about that, whether you have your own kids or not. Um, Absolutely. Because if, if this doesn't get done, if, if mommy's not there and daddy's not there and the child doesn't get raised, um, I can tell you from experience, 
trying to substitute after the fact is very uncertain, you know, and um, and not very reliable and um, and lots more expensive than just having mom and dad do what moms and dads naturally and normally do. So that's the background to this whole thing. And that's why I was concerned. I've, I've from the beginning been very concerned about the impact on children of some of these COVID mitigation measures. Um, and so that when the, when the studies came out and you called it to my attention, Gabriel, which I thank you for calling some of them. I, I was aware of some of them, but you, you had found some others. Um, I think this definitely needs to be talked about. Let's talk about the IQ testing on infants, specifically okay. the, the the Fagan test of, of infant intelligence. Now, this is used for up to 12 months of age and uses facial recognition identification tests with these babies. And so the, the goal is to identify babies who are at risk for cognitive and developmental delays. So my question is this. What are your thoughts on, on these types of tests? I mean, is it adequate testing? How, how can we really understand the, the mental intelligence of an infant? Well, there, there are multiple aspects to it, okay? A lot of times when we think about intelligence, we think about one number, IQ, you know? Sure. Um, but when you really start, um, and so I, I don't think anybody thinks that these kinds of tests you're doing with infants are the same thing exactly as standardized IQ tests, okay? Sure. But what they are getting at is different levels, um, different aspects of a child's development in their functioning and in, in, in different capacities. So this one test that you're talking about is facial recognition. You know, can the child in effect tell the difference between a picture of their mom and a picture of someone else? You know, can, can they? If they can't, you got a problem. Okay. And you can figure that out at three months, six months, nine months, you know, that child should be able to recognize the difference between their mommy's face and somebody else's face. All right. So now if you put masks on everybody's face and I'm not clear how many moms are nursing with masks over their faces. Okay. I don't know if anybody's being forced to do something like that, but in any case, um, if, if you've got everybody, if, if the child's going around seeing people all covered up all the time, what are they learning? Are they able to develop those discerning skills that they need to be developing? I, I don't think we know the answer to that, to that, um, to that question exactly. But that 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 one study was was attempting to look at that. You know, that's interesting that you brought up nursing. When when my wife is nursing our daughter, her eyes are locked on my wife's face. No and kidding. There's no distractions. It's it's incredible yes. to see. Yes, a lot of your listeners are uh, are Catholic, so I want you to think about Hail Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy, thine eyes of mercy towards us, okay? That prayer is calling attention to the eyes of a mother towards the child, all right? So this is a, this connection, this the, the eye contact between a mommy and a baby mm. and the and the heart contact contact between the mommy and the baby. This is deep. Okay. This is primal stuff. Oh yeah. And I don't care. All you, all you science guys who think you're so smart, stop it. Just stop <laughs> it. Okay. This is, this is hardcore, hardwired stuff in the human condition, you know? So what you're seeing there with your, with your bride and your baby, that's a hundred percent normal. Right. And, wow. and, um, and natural and instinctive. And that is where your daughter's brain is developing. Sure. You know, that lock on that you're talking about that, that she's making the connection, that little baby, well before she's got any language, she's making the connection between a person, a particular person, love, 
sweet food in her mouth and her life and her existence, right? She's making all that connection. And that is part of what it means to be human, right? Uh, to, to, be, uh, to be a social being, for us as humans to be social, to look at another person and think, this is a life-giving being. This person is not a threat to me. <laughs> you know, this is not a person going to kill me with their germs, right? Um, so there's, there's something... Uh, very deep that goes on in that in that nursing moment. And we now know, which I did not know when I first wrote Love and Economics, we now know that the brain is developing. That is where that development of the limbic brain is taking place, right in that process as part of it, part of the whole mysterious organic package, you know, sure. um, uh, the, the brain is also developing and the child is, is, uh, is, is learning facial recognition skills and uh, interpreting, uh, 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 interpreting faces, right? Is this an angry face? Is this a sad face? Is this a happy face? They're learning all of that stuff. Um, and, and their brain is being wired, you could say, Wired isn't quite the right word because there's a plastic, there's a hard part and a soft part of development. And mm -hmm. I'm sure if you got a neuroscience guy on here, they'd give you the right, the right um, description of it. But but you could think of it in that way. You know, there's a kind of plastic part to it, and then there's a kind of hard part to it. Sure. And you and you have to you have to develop the neural pathways in order for them to respond properly. And so the those cues and those pathways are being laid down now while you're doing that nursing. And you put that mask on and it completely disrupts the learning process. I mean, my, my, I mean, if I think about it from the perspective of my daughter, her identity yes. is intimately connected to my wife's. That's and, right. And when you put that mask on, I can, compl I can totally see the confusion that is happening right. in, in my daughter's, in my daughter's mind. It's right. Um, actually this leads me to my, my, my next question. Um, so in light of COVID restrictions, mask mandates, social distancing, all, all, all that, I keep hearing on the mainstream media, kids are resilient. Kids are resilient. Don't worry. Just stick to the COVID protocol. Uh, now, that, I, that does not sit well with me. And here's why. They, they can't even control their own emotions. They, they, the, the prefrontal cortex of the brain having to do with the reason isn't even fully developed until roughly the age of 25 years old. Now, in your book, Love and Economics, which, by the way, I, I cannot recommend enough. I have a, I'll have a link in the show notes for our listeners. You write in the book that kids are, are naturally helpless. They need love. They need attention. They need interaction. Like you said earlier, nourishment. Uh, they need to be cleaned and fed and held. So, Dr. Morse, why do I keep hearing that kids are resilient if that just isn't the case at all? Well, you know— Gabriel, when I wrote Love and Economics, uh, it was published in 2001. Okay, so 20, it's 20 years old. And when I wrote it, I was concerned with um, infant development and the, the basics of, of family development. That term, kids are resilient, has been from for a long time the watchwords of the, sex, the whole sexual revolution. Because what the sexual revolution wants to say is that adults get to have whatever living arrangements they want, and the kids will somehow adapt to it. The kids will be fine. Okay. So the aspect of where kids aren't fine, what you and I have been talking about now, that part never really enters the calculus of people who are saying, you can have as many divorces as you want, and the kids will be fine. Because the kids are resilient. The kid, They won't even notice 
if you kick the father out before they're three years old or something like that, they're not even going to know this is going to be fine. You know, sure, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, so that that whole that whole uh, I think it, it's a myth. It's a superstition. Actually, you could say it's a superstition. The superstition is, some, is something we believe in spite of the facts because we like the way it makes us feel. And the claim that kids are resilient is the big modern superstition. Kids are not resilient, particularly in infancy. The fact that they are pre-verbal doesn't mean they're more resilient. <laughs> the fact that they're pre-verbal means that they're more vulnerable. And things are being laid down in their brains, in their bodies, in their experiences, going to carry them through their entire lives. It's going to be a lot harder to deal with when they're 10 or 12. And you can talk to them when they're 10 or 12. I'll give you that. But you can't talk them out of the early childhood experience that they did or did not have because what took place there was principally not verbal. You know, I mean, what's going on between your wife and your daughter is not verbal. Agreed. You know, agreed that it's not, you know, so it's not it's not cognitive. It's not proper to call it cognitive or verbal. Right. It's it's prior to all of that. So. To, to say kids are resilient uh, as a way of excusing ourselves from our responsibility to these to these helpless beings uh, that that's a dodge. It's a dodge. You, you know, it's a it's a it's a what what do I want to say? It's a it's a it's a cover. It's our cover story. That's what we say to make ourselves feel better about what we're doing. But it's not true. The kids kids aren't resilient from divorce. Kids aren't resilient to parent absence. Kids aren't resilient to uh, their parents changing sex partners, you know, getting a new boyfriend or a new girlfriend or something like that. Kids are every one of those things that supposedly they're so resilient to that it has a lasting impact on them every every single one. And so this this much, much earlier stuff that these studies have been calling attention to or, or you know, trying to get a handle on that's e- even more profound. I think. And, and, and I think we should emphasize, Gabriel, that the studies, at least the studies I've seen, these people are being really cautious. They're not making sweeping conclusions and saying, oh, by golly, we know what's going on here. They're admitting we don't know what's going on here, but we got some big red flags. We have no right to be cavalier right. uh, about red flags that are this big. I, I'm I'm a grown man, and I don't even think I'm resilient. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, and you know that's one of the um, that's one of the ironies of the whole thing is that is that adults are thought to be so uh, vulnerable and um, uh, perishable and not resilient right. uh, that our happiness depends on doing exactly what we want. Mm. And if we don't get exactly what we want, oh my gosh, we're not going to flourish. We're going to be, it's going to be awful for us. But the little kids, oh, they're totally resilient. Nothing bothers them. They'll be completely fine. I'm like, come on, you know, I mean, adults should be protecting children, not the other way around. Absolutely. So regarding the the IQ drop in babies, there's this lead researcher, Sean Dioni, yes. who's a professor of, of pediatrics at Brown University. And he, and he says this, um, th- this brief quote regarding the 22-point the, the drop. Yes. He says this. It's not subtle by any stretch. You don't typically see things like that outside of major cognitive disorders. Parents are stressed and frazzled. That interaction the child would normally get has decreased substantially. The ability to course correct becomes smaller the older that child gets. I think that what he said was profound, especially when he says 
that the ability to course correct is is that that timeline is is very finite. Right. Um, he also compares this to studies that were done to orphans in Romania, and I know that you touched on this earlier. Can you discuss this in light of your own experiences? What did he exactly say about the Romanian kids? Yeah, in the in the BMJ uh, article, and I'm going to add a link to the, the show notes. He was just comparing the the development and cognitive decline to these children born in, in the COVID era to the children in Romania. And he is seeing a, that this connection is very close. Wow. Well, I, 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 think, I think it is, we should say that the BMJ article that you're talking about, they're very cautious about drawing conclusions about exactly why we're seeing what we're seeing. Hmm. Um, they actually had a measure of parental stress. Um, and so they measured mother's stress. And that turned out not to matter in their particular sample. Now, why is that? I don't know why that is exactly. One one hypothesis is, is that the, the mothers who were willing to come to the clinic to get tested were the, probably the least stressed people out there. The people who were really scared or really freaked out or whatever um, might have been staying home and not coming in. But they don't really know. So we, we don't really know why these in that particular study, they're not making strong, strong causal claims. But as a pediatrician, he's looking at that and just, you know, his mind is his mind's exploding, you know, kind of like mine, um, that that the possible the possible links. There are just so many possible places that this thing can can go south um, because kids really, really are seriously needy. So, yeah, if 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 mom and dad are really highly stressed, they're not going to be as present to the child, even if everything else is normal. So even if they're they're at home and they're together and they're making eye contact and they're not wearing masks when they're nursing the baby or, you know, whatever, but they're under a lot of other kinds of stress, it's conceivable that that's going to affect the child's development in different ways, you know? Mm. Um, and so that's what he's just, he's just, you know, trying trying to get a grip on, uh, on, understanding what he's actually uncovered there. But yeah, the, the declines are really significant. And I, I think that the the most significant chart where you can really see it in that BMJ paper is figure two, because I looked around, you know, trying to find out where, you know, where these numbers were. And on figure two, they've got the early learning composite, the verbal development quotient, the nonverbal development quotient. Hmm. Um, and that nonverbal development quotient drops by... Um, drops by about 25 points and the verbal development quotient drops by that's the one that's like 30 points um it gets these tests are all standardized to be uh, to have 100 be the norm right yep and so if the if the whole average is dropping like that that's huge that's huge and we don't know whether that's temporary or permanent or if it's permanent in what way it's permanent there's so much we don't know so you you adopted a a child from Romania. Yes. H how long ago was that? Yeah, we adopted him in 1991. The, the year that Acton was founded was the year that um, was the year that we became parents. Uh, it sticks in my memory very, very clearly because Chris Mowrin invited me to go to a conference um, in, in, I want to say, September or October of 1991. And I, I remember distinctly closing the office door 
and saying, I, I, don't, I don't think I can come because we're expecting a baby to arrive in a little while, a little boy to arrive in a little while, and I'm pregnant. So I, I don't think I can come to this conference, Chris. Right. <laughs> so I remember this very clearly when it was, you know. Um, but but um, anyway, what did you want to know um, about our experience? I, I wanted to ask about um, your your parenting versus uh, your parenting towards your biological daughter. Uh, yeah. is, was it different? Did you notice a, uh, a growth in intelligence? Did you notice that there was actual a decline in developmental behaviors in your son? I can say this without hesitation, Gabriel, that the fact that we had those two children and the difference between those two children, that is why there is a Ruth Institute today. Mm. Because having those two kids in the house at the same time, told me beyond any shadow of a doubt that children need their parents. Children really, really need their parents. And the whole sexual revolution has disrupted the parent-child relationship. They will never admit that, but it has, you know. Um, And and so, you know, we, as I mentioned, we were concerned about attachment disorder. Does this kid even notice we're here? (laughs) You know, Um, is he, is he looking at us when we're talking to him? You know, these kind of things. Um, and, and a seriously attachment disordered person can turn into a full on sociopath. And I do remember and you know, in the 90s when we were raising these kids, I do remember thinking, wow, these kids who lose their minds and, and start shooting everybody up and then feel no re- feel no remorse about it. I very strongly uh, connected that to the fact that they were not properly attached. And now, 20 years later, school shootings uh, with fatherless boys basically being the ones doing it, you know, it's pretty much as as it's worse today, of course, than it was in 1991, because the things causing it, the inability of the child to attach that we haven't done a darn thing to improve that, you know, those conditions are still um, flourishing. But what here's what I would say about our son's development. When he arrived, he was already two and a half years old. There were a certain set of things most kids can do when they're two and a half years old that he couldn't do. And he tested pretty well for IQ. Um, we, we never, nobody ever told us that he was unintelligent or anything like that. And he is intelligent. There's, there's no doubt about that. But his verbal development, his language development, those types of things were, were seriously impaired and took a lot of intervention to make it work. Whereas our daughter her development was come, just kind of coming along naturally and normally. Mm. And so we're kind of watching this happen where, you know, we do these normal things and she responds normally. We do other things, you know, with do the same kind of things with our boy. And he's like, he's like baffled, you know, he just doesn't know what's going on. Doesn't know how to re, doesn't know how to respond and stuff like that. Um, but, but as things turned out, they have both turned out to be just fine. Um, but the point is not that every child, of divorced parents or single parents or something is going to turn out to be like a Romanian orphanage or orphan or a sociopath or something. That's not the point. The point is as parents and as adult society, we want to give children the best chance that they can have. Things can still go South, but you don't want to set up a situation where the odds have been diminished by just by the structure of the situation, right? If you can possibly help it, you know, and we can possibly help a lot of these things we can help and and we can improve, you know, Um, I'll just give you one example of a social thing, a purely social thing. 
How old is your baby? Do you mind if I ask? Sure. She's eight months. She's eight months. Okay. Do you play peekaboo with her yet? Yes. All the time. Okay. Okay. All the time. Well, we had one of the, you know, we were kind of surrounded by child development specialists and stuff who were coaching us, telling us what to do and stuff. And one of them told us that peekaboo is a significant developmental task in the following sense. You put the little, you, you cover the baby's face and, and, and they're waiting to see what's going to happen. And they're surprised and they're happy. Why? Because they see your face, their face and, you know, their little face and your face, they connect and that's the game. That's it. That's the whole thing. Um, and, and it takes a while for kids to be able to do that. So, you know, sure enough, my husband's doing that with our daughter and, you know, she's tossing the little, you put the little blankie over their face and she tosses it off and it's all fun. And we tried doing that with our son, who is by that time, like three years old. And he was scared. When you put the cloth over his face, he was scared. We had to teach him. We had to teach him that it was safe to play that game. See, whereas normal babies aren't scared. You know, learning to do it is not that is not overcoming fear isn't part of the task. Right. Right. Um, Right. So so that's the kind of disruption and development that can take place if you are not having normal uh, interpersonal social interactions. So I noticed in the the BMJ article that families in, in low income areas, especially the boys, have experienced a, a, a more significant drop in cognitive development. Yes. Can you comment on that? Well, yes, I, I noticed that too um, in this paper that um, the there were larger declines and more consistent, statistically significant declines in the cognitive development for the boys and for the the poor children, the low social economic status. What what I think we need to say about that is that that is consistent in most of the areas that get studied of, of things that are risky for children, whether we're talking about divorce or, you know, something like this, where, you know, where there's, um, you know, obviously an obvious physiological uh, component to it, the boys are generally more vulnerable to any kind of stressors in the environment. Boys are more sensitive to stress in their mother. Okay. That's, that's been proven, I don't know, 30 years ago, people knew that. Um, that when mom is depressed, it's more likely to have an impact on the little boy than on the little girl. So, uh, so much for toxic masculinity or uh, male dominance, right? I mean, really, the boys, generally speaking, are more vulnerable, and including in this study. I mean, really, it, in a child developmental sense, I, I saw one child development person say this, that um, boys are developmentally delayed compared to girls boys are developmentally delayed at birth and, and they're scrambling to catch up, you know, in a, in a sense. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, until they get to be like fourth grade or something like that. Not so much in the, not so much in the physicality stuff and the, the measures of physical right. um, abilities, but in the cognitive things, things like autism and um, birth defects, um, developmental dis- delays, developmental disorders, and things like that. The boys are more vulnerable, and, and pretty much anyone you can think of. Right. Um, th- they're more; those things are more likely to happen to to boys than to girls. I talk about that in my latest book, The Sexual State, because I have a whole thing in there on sex differences. You know, what are some tips to protect our children's cognitive health, especially for parents who uh, gave birth to children in the COVID era? 
Well, I, I think you need to keep looking at your baby. All right. And you need to make sure that they have opportunities to interact with people outside the family um, that are normal interactions as much as possible. The, the evidence is that children and certainly infants are not particularly vulnerable to COVID at all. Hmm. And so in normal families, a lot of people can end up holding the baby. You know, you pass the baby around to grandma and auntie and, you know, if you can possibly do that, you should you should keep trying to do that as much personal, physical, eye to eye, heart to heart interaction as you can. I would say with the with the infants, especially with the infants. Why is a mother's engagement with her baby so important? But but specifically the mother. Yes. So so the mother, the mother is a first the child's first bond to the human race. OK. And in our age of gender confusion and uh, gender ideology and so on, people do not want to admit how deeply and profoundly our bodily differences really affect things. Right. right. Absolutely. But in fact, the mother gives birth to the child. The mother has been the home to the child for the first nine months of the child's life. The mother's absolutely unique. You don't want to erase the mother. You don't want to claim that mom, that anybody can do what mom does. You, you got, we got to stop that. Um, and dad can't do what mom does, right? Mm-hmm. So th- that that mother-child bond is the child's link to the whole rest of the human race. So that's why you really want to protect that bond and why we as mothers, we as women need to take it seriously and and need to honor ourselves and each other that this job that we are doing is extremely important. It's not something for brainless idiots, okay? I mean, that kind of, that whole careerist feminist rhetoric is, has been so destructive, in, in, in my opinion. It, you, you do not lose your mind when you become a mother. You find your heart when you become a mother, and your mind develops in different kinds of ways as, as a woman, you know, you find parts of your personality that you didn't know were there. But from the child's perspective, this is your link to the rest of the human race and it colors everything else that happens. That's why I, I think it's so important. And all the business that we talked about earlier in the show about um, about the development of the brain and the connection between personal interactions and love and safety, all of that makes uh, for a, a more fulfilled and optimistic kind of life uh, f- for a human person. In, in your book, you wrote something interesting. You said that the mother takes care of the child, but who takes care of the mother? So from the perspective of a father, what can we do to create an environment that enhances that personal development and cognitive health for our child? Yes, yes. It's, I, I think if you look at the normal development of a child, there's also a normal development of the mother and father in their relationship to the to each other and to the child, right? Oh, oh yeah. So, so in, in infancy, the child is completely dependent on the mother. Therefore, dad has to be the backstop. You know, dad has to make sure that mom is taken care of, that her needs are satisfied and that she can, that she gets the rest that she needs and, and that she's fed and that she's not stressed. And, you know, those types of things, you know, to, to try to do, to try to do all the things that modern woman is expected to do that it's, it's, it's ridiculous, really, honestly. Um, but also for her to feel 
for her, for her to feel secure in the relationship. I mean, that's very important. A lot of times, a new baby is disruptive to the to the mother child to the father and mother relationship to the to the spousal relationship, right? And sometimes the father will feel excluded because the mom and baby are so tight, and he's not part of it. But I think both mother and father need to attend to the spousal relationship. You don't want to let the spousal relationship go away, you know? Absolutely. So you, you, you need to be you as a, as a father and as a husband, you need to be there, um, you know, to love her, to love her, which means to seek her good and to, to do what she needs and be patient with this period of time where it may not be clear to you that she still loves you. Right. Because she's so focused on the baby, but be patient because that time will go away. And as the child gets older, the father's direct role in the child's life becomes more significant. And that's why the single mother thing so often falls apart when the child hits puberty. Right. That's where the father absence really kicks in mm. as a problem, you know, as a, as a, as a big problem because dad's now escorting the child out out of the home and into the wider world. And mom can do that. There's no question mom can do that. But dad can do that with limits and safety that provide more protection and more oomph, more go on, get out the door. You're going to be fine kind of kind of vibes, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the collaboration between the mom and the dad that is kind of a dance over the life cycle, that's really important to keep that intact. And you cannot replace that with a series of sequential relationships, revolving door re- um, sexual relationships. That's part of what's lost um, w- when you try to do that. You know, another thing, another thing about the dads um, is that even when the dads, even when the baby's little, I don't want to overlook this point. Sure. Even when babies are little, uh, the dad does different things with the baby than the mom does. Okay. The dad is the one generally who's going to be bouncing the baby up and down and yep. bouncing them on the knee and tossing them in the air. Right. And yep. just all this kind of stuff. Kids think that's a riot. The kids think it's so fun. And mom's over there. Oh. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> I, I distinctly remember Gabriel's slight change of subject, sure. but I distinctly remember my two older brothers. There was a 20 year age gap between the oldest and youngest in our family. My two older brothers, I distinctly remember them with our baby sister and they were tossing her <laughs> back and forth to each other across the kitchen. And all of us younger kids, we all thought that was hilarious. The baby's laughing like crazy and, you know, everything's great. And my poor mother is there like, oh my gosh, my <laughs> child's going to die, you know, kind of a thing. So, so I, I just want to um, mention that that aspect of what dads do is really important. We found out that that spinning the child and throwing them around and you know, just just all that kind of physicality that dads do it actually helps develop the verbal skills of the child interesting the verbal skills unbelievable unbelievable i wouldn't believe it if it if i hadn't seen it with my own eyes but the when when babies are rocked and spun around in circles if, if let me let me let me let me back up what is this part of the brain uh, called it's a um it's part of the nervous system. It's part of the central nervous system. And when children have language delays, toddlers have language delays, it isn't unusual for the speech therapist to put them into some kind of little swing or spinner and spin them around for you know five minutes or something and then start the lesson. And after that, they learn better because that it's vestibular. That's what it's called, the vestibular nervous system. When that's been stimulated like that, the children's receptivity to learning language increases. 
Now, who would have ever guessed a thing like that? But there you go. So dads, it's that's all part of your job. Who knew? But that's part of your job. Wow. So so I know. so rough and tumble play is actually necessary for their growth. Absolutely necessary. You know, another thing, another thing that dads do, and this again, this is the older kids, but when there's rough and tumble play going on, somebody gets hurt. What does dad do? When somebody gets hurt, the game stops and the perpetrator is set aside and you don't get to play anymore. But but even that, Gabriel, look what we're saying. We're saying that dad's interaction with the children in that setting is what teaches them the limits of self-defense. You don't just go smashing people because they smashed you. Maybe you, maybe there's a time for that, but you have to be taught what that is, right? Right. Absolutely. You got to be taught. And, and so that's part of what happens in rough and tumble play is, is you learn how to set limits. You, and, and for a child to see their daddy, their daddy is the most powerful person in the world. In their little world, right? Sure. Daddy's the biggest, strongest, most powerful guy ever, you know, to them. Mm-hmm. And so to see dad manage his strength, to see dad manage his anger, to see dad channel his anger into some places and suppress it in other places, that's very valuable. That's, you know, one of those non-cognitive, non-verbal things that you can't fully articulate everything that's going on. But if you don't witness that, if you don't, if you're not a participant in it while it's going on, you're losing something very big. This is mind-blowing stuff. I I did not, <laughs> I didn't realize that, you know, because because here's the thing. I, I, I rough and tumble with my daughter all the time. I throw her sure. in the air. She loves it. My wife gets nervous. It's hilarious. I didn't know that that's, it's actually necessary for her cognitive growth. I mean, that is, <laughs> right. it's, it's a, right. uh, it's fun for me because like I, I'm just I'm just having fun. I just want her to laugh and right. It's it's great. But you see, that's that uh, to say that. Let me say this to all of our Acton followers here. Okay, all of us across the religious spectrum of people who follow Acton. I'm sure everybody agrees with this that the human person was meant for love. Right. God created every single one of us as an act of love for us, and He wants us to love. That's who we are as persons. That's what it means to be a person. And the fact that you find it fun to do something that is beneficial to your daughter, that's hardwired into you. I wonder who hardwired that into you, Gabriel. You know, I mean, our creator, our creator created us in such a way that it would be pleasurable for us to give of ourselves in these ways. I think it's very beautiful. Atheism has nothing to offer that's anywhere comparable in power. To that experience that you just described of playing with your little daughter on the bed. Evolution can't compete with that. You know, I mean, the evolutionary mechanism, that's like, that's like, that's like child's play. Sure. That's like, that's like comparing a pile of Tinker Toys to the, to the Empire State Building or something. You know, I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous. Dr. Morse is the founder of the Ruth Institute, a global nonprofit organization that defends the family at home and in the public square. Dr. Morse, thank you for joining me today. I'm very glad to do it. Anytime, Gabriel. As always, thank you for listening. Our team loves putting this podcast together for you. It's encouraging to hear from our listeners. Feedback is incredibly important to us because it lets us know what you'd like to hear more of, including the kinds of topics you're interested in most. If you have comments, feedback, or ideas for a show topic or interesting guest, you can email our team at producer at acton.org. Until next week, for Acton Line, I'm Gabriel Zhajan.